Well, welcome back to the podcast. Simon Breakspear here. And in this series of conversations, what I'm trying to do is tease apart complex ideas, get a sense about how global thinkers' thinking has shifted and evolved over time, and get towards practical strategies and tactics that can help school and system leaders navigate the complex change that they're leading. And today, I'm having a conversation with Steve Mumby. Steve is based in England. He's been a teacher, a leader of a local education authority, and he was the chief executive for a decade of the National College for School Leadership in England. In our conversation today, we get into the nature of effective leadership, what we know about um, how to develop other leaders, and we also touch on some of the things that leaders across the world are currently navigating as they walk through the challenges and potentially also some of the silver linings educationally of responding to the global pandemic. I bring you my conversation with Steve Mumby. Well, Steve Mumby, thanks so much for making some time to connect. We are physically distant uh, by uh, continents, you in the UK and me in Australia, but uh, it's great to connect socially. And so I think the last time we might have been together in person, was it wise in, in Paris? Was that the gathering the last time we were in person? Do you remember? I think we were in person in Sydney, actually, uh, together. That's the oh, last time we of when course, we were working in New on South uh, Wales. School leadership work. Well, who would have thought the last time we were together in person that, uh, you know, we would, st- we would be in this situation. Uh, we had, uh, t- you know, clear plans to get together in March, I remember. Uh, we had a time to meet in Melbourne. We were going to get together. Uh, and suddenly uh, we were thinking, oh, maybe it will still happen. Maybe it will still happen. But then everything just got turned upside down. So I'm so glad that now a little bit later on, we can just find this time to have a conversation, explore some of the things that we always love to talk about, school improvement, school leadership, system change and renewal. So first up, how are you? How are you, how are you coping and weathering this global pandemic we're living through? Well, personally, I'm absolutely fine. I'm, I'm obviously concerned about what's happening, especially here in the UK with so many tragic deaths mm. and uh, especially in our care homes and our old people dying uh, in isolation, which is a horrible situation. Mm. But in, on a personal level, I'm fine. In fact, I've never had as much time for reflection yeah. since I was a student 40 years ago. <laughs> so on a personal level, I'm fine, but obviously I'm concerned about what's happening out there. So it took a, a global pandemic to slow you up a little bit and <laughs> <laughs> reflect on and, and think about uh, all your years in education leadership. I mean, uh, I know a lot of people would know your work uh, from afar, whether those in England, Australia, North America, other people tuning into the conversation. But for those who don't know, uh, obviously you started off as a teacher. Was that in Birmingham? I started off teaching in Birmingham in the UK, yes. Fantastic. Well, and the only thing I know about Birmingham is really what I've learned from Peaky Blinders. I don't know whether that helps. <laughs> um, and then uh, from there, you were in leadership in a local educational authority. Now, I was lucky to spend a bit of time in England doing my graduate study, so I learned a little bit. So for those who aren't from England, can you just let us know briefly what's a local educational authority and how many schools? A local authority is a bit like uh, what you might have a district or a region Great. in some other systems. Uh, and you would have uh, school improvement or school effectiveness uh, officers or advisors working with schools to help them to improve and and the local authority at the time would have responsibility for overseeing uh, some in some cases a large authority maybe 400 schools a small authority maybe 80 or 90 schools and how many did you have what was the name of your authority well uh, I I worked with a number but the one I was uh, when I was in charge uh, as director of education was one of the most deprived places in England a place called Nosley near Merseyside, and right. we had about uh, 85 schools. All right. And what was the performance of those schools like when you, when you turned up, Steve? Uh, when I went there, we had uh, the second worst examination results in the whole country. And um, you have low expectations. And what about after a little bit of your leadership? How do things go? After a year of my leadership, we had the worst examination results 
in the whole country. So it went from the second worst to the worst. It was, you know, in, in my book, I've written about uh, Dark Nights of the Soul Times as the okay. leader. Uh, and that was certainly one of them for me, uh, because after 10 months in the job, I went live on uh, Radio Merseyside when the results were announced. Yeah. And the broadcaster said to me, with respect, she said, just give up, it's hopeless. <laughs> uh, One and, year and in. That, uh. And that, uh, that week I got a phone call from a national newspaper called the Daily Mail in England mm -hmm. saying, we'd like to do an interview with the leader of the worst local authority in the country. <laughs> uh, would you be willing to do an interview? And I, and then I'll, 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 I'll see whether he might be available. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that, that week also, um, the Liverpool Echo, which was the regional newspaper, uh, had a letter in calling for my resignation because I was, I'd brought disgrace upon the borough of Nosley. So I was a dark, my first year there was a dark wow. night of the show as a leader. Steve, I think, you know, that's probably uh, going to give some people out there some hope who were uh, maybe in the first year or so of a headship, a principalship, uh, a head of a department, faculty, and they think, I think it's got worse in the first year. It's sort of, it's okay, you know. So, so obviously it didn't stay there. I mean, you couldn't go any further backwards, which is always good. Um, can you give us just the 30,000 feet headlines of sort of what happened over the, the next, you know, half decade? Well, let me mention two or three things. First of all, I, um, I got help. Uh, I had mentors. I'm a big fan of mentors. Uh, um, and I, I wonder whether I should resign because I was, you know, we weren't doing well uh, after eight months in the job. But my mentor persuaded me that I needed to just do, do, what, do what I was doing, but have more time to do it. So I stayed on and I got all the head teachers together. And I told them that in three years time, people would be coming from all over the country to find out how we've been so successful. Hmm. Because I wanted them to uh, have a sense that we were gonna do it. Uh, and I had to show some optimistic leadership. Uh, I said, put it in your diaries, because it's gonna happen. And it did happen. We had quite a bit of success. We had a really successful uh, offset inspection. Mm. And we, uh, we were one of the most improved local authorities in the country by the time I left. So uh, it was a great journey. I love that. I, I, this idea of, uh, you know, what do you do when you're out of depth and you have that self-doubt and other people, you're all the way to the point of something being in uh, the newspaper calling for resignation. And I love, you know, reach out to mentors and that advice of, you know, maybe you don't need to change the tactics or the strategies. You just need more time. And, you know, we see that a lot in educational change. And I think under the pressures right now of have the results improved and often the need to improve, you know, what I'd probably say are, are lagging variables, the end student outcomes. They say, have you changed it yet? It's been a year. Have you changed it yet? It's been two years. And that sense of, um, you know, maybe you need to keep doing the right work, but just give yourself enough time to, to change things in human organizations. Uh, and then that, that vision you paved out, that sense of things, things are going to get better, you know, uh, come on this journey together. So yeah. after that, um, you know, I think I first came across your work when you were the CEO of the National College of School uh, Leadership in England, uh, as someone who's both studied and been interested in system approaches to investing in school leadership. Uh, you know, the National College was the, probably the first and the standout one, the one that many of us around the world went to, to, to learn from and to look at. And so then you were uh, in a leadership role, but you were leading leadership development uh, across a, a large system. Uh, and then after that, I know you, you've done work then in international education and on education development, you know, beyond England. And so within all of that context, I know we'll, we'll pick up on some threads from, from uh, those 15 years that I think I've just glossed over there in 10 seconds. Uh, but what I want to do is maybe get into some of the, the insights on leadership and particularly insights on leadership from your time at the National College through the lens of this book you've written recently, um, Imperfect Leadership. And I wanted just to, I mean, what's, what's amazing about the text is I think you've both dealt with the theory and practice of leadership, but also uh, interwoven your own leadership insights and story. And so I want to ask you first up, when you go to kind of codify 
15 years plus of thinking about leadership in a book. Why do you choose the adjective imperfect to put in front of leadership? What took you to that title? Why is it imperfect leadership? Well, thanks, because um, the book is, uh, I used to have to make a speech every year at a big conference Mm -hmm. as part of my role as chief executive of the National College of School Leadership. And every year, since it was the same kind of people who turned up, that to be a different speech on leadership every year. And I made That's 12 a long of them. way to do it, Steve. You meant to prepare once, use in different places, not keep the audience the same. <laughs> so uh, people say, well, maybe you should publish your speeches. So I thought, well, I can't just publish the speeches. I'm going to write about what I was wrestling with in my leadership at the time and then put each it. speech in, in a context. Now, um, overall, I think my leadership has been successful. But there's been all kinds of struggles on the way. And I, I think um, the best way to describe my leadership is imperfect. And it's not something I'm embarrassed about. I'm actually, I'm proud to be an imperfect leader. In fact, I have a problem with this idea of perfect leadership. I think if we think we have to be perfect as a leader, we'll do our heads in. We'll make ourselves mentally or physically ill. We'll never feel good enough. If we think we have to be perfect as a leader, we won't use the expertise around us and share leadership. We'll try and do it all ourselves. Yeah. If we think yeah. we have to be perfect as a leader, we won't encourage others to step up into leadership because they have to be perfect as well. So it's a, it's a, this idea of perfect leadership is a negative concept for me. Mm. So the book is about the, is in, in celebration <laughs> of imperfect leadership. I love it. Yeah. And that's okay. You, you, you claim the term and um, finding it as a, as a liberating concept. Uh, what I love about it, it gets to the humanity of what it is to be a whole person in the role of leadership, um, strengths and vulnerabilities and weaknesses, what it is to have knowledge, but incomplete knowledge of what we're trying to do in the context we're working in. You know, I think there's this... Um, sort of power in the vulnerability uh, in that we're all works in progress. Uh, so tell me a little bit, uh, take me a little bit deeper into, as you've conceptualized imperfect leadership, what are some, some, some of the next level down pieces that would help put some flesh on the bones of this? Let me give you three or four aspects of it, uh, Simon. The first one is, I think uh, imperfect leaders are self-aware. They know what their strengths are and they know what their areas for improvement are. And I I think this is fundamental Mm. for leadership. In fact, when I was chief executive at the National College in England, we had something called the NPQH, which was the National Professional Qualification for Headship. And the government at the time had decided that anyone who wanted to become a principal had to do this program. It was like a driver's license for a principal. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like a driver's license to a principal. It became a legal requirement. The trouble was, too many people had it who weren't ready for headship. Got it. Like, it's like, uh, to use a driving license example, people were passing the test but weren't good at driving, weren't ready for driving. But we were, we were giving people this qualification when they weren't ready for principalship. So we had to have a long, hard look at this mm. and make it harder. And one of the key things we did to make it harder, to make it so that the people who got it would be ready for headship. Yep. We made it a requirement that anyone applying to go on the program should do a 360 feedback with their colleagues. Got it. Uh, ask, their colleagues will be asked by an independent facilitator about their leadership. Mm. And then the facilitator would feed back to them uh, what they were doing, what their colleagues thought about them. Now, if they, they welcome that feedback, if they embrace the areas for improvement, yes. uh, then they got on the program. I love it. If they did not recognize the feedback, if they were overly defensive about any criticisms, they did not get on the program. Because our view was, and I stand by this, that self-awareness is a key 
to effective leadership. I love it. So I could go on about that. But so so the thing mentioned- wasn't actually how they scored, but was their response to the feedback that exactly. was giving you the, the proxy, the information of this idea of their level of self-awareness, their level of being able to be self-reflective, see other, other um, perspectives on their own leadership practice. I love exactly. it. Exactly. Mm. And then two more issues, if you, if you don't mind. The first one is, I think imperfect leaders, because they know their weaknesses as well as their strengths, yeah. go out of their way to, to surround themselves with great people mm. who have expertise in areas they know they haven't got. Uh, and uh, I, I, I talked to a principal friend of mine who said, I regard myself as a bungalow and I surround myself with skyscrapers. <laughs> because, because I think the idea is, if you know what you're not good at, yeah, you surround yourself with people who are good at those things. So instead of trying to be a perfect leader, you try to create a perfect team. And because you believe in that, and because you know you, you don't know all the answers, mm. you then empower your team. You listen to what your team has to say. You respect their, their perspective. And instead of delegating tasks, yeah. evolve responsibility. And that's far more likely to lead to a, a, a trusting, empowered mm. team than someone who thinks that they know it all and all the decisions have to go through them. And then the last one I'd say about this mm. um, is imperfect leaders ask for help. <laughs> they don't regard it as a, um, as a weakness. You see, I think in invitational leadership is what I would call it, invitational mm. leadership. has probably been my main leadership style over the years. I don't think I thought much about that, really. It was just instinctive. But it turns out it's a really great leadership style. It turns out it's a really effective leadership style. Because when you ask for help, when you say, I'm wrestling with this, would you, will you help me on this? It builds a sense of collective responsibility Got it. instead of, I'll just tell you the answers. So people feel engaged and empowered and you can build towards a sense of co- collective responsibility in a way that imperfect leaders just don't do. But on top of that, you just get better outcomes. So when I went to the National College of School Leadership, mm. uh, I'd gone from running a, a small, deprived local authority to being in charge of this huge national organization with 23,000 schools. Uh, and reporting directly to the Secretary of State on leadership development. <laughs> and I was completely out of my depth. I mean, it really was. Uh, I was supposed to advise the Minister for Schools on and, and Education on leadership. Yeah. I never even met a minister before, oh, never mind advise them on, on school leadership. Talk and about imposter syndrome. Oh, wow. The only thing you can do in that situation, Simon, is to ask for help. You surround yourself with people who know far more than you do and you listen to their advice. So I got some great mentors. I went out of my way to get, to get mentors. And here's something about mentoring, I think, yeah. is, uh, is not really addressed enough. Why do people think that you can be a leader without having a mentor? That's hmm. the first question. And some people think they can. The second question is, why only one? Yeah. I've always had three or four. And I t- there's two reasons why I'd have three or four rather than one. Uh, because most of the people you ask to be mentors are very busy people. Hmm. Uh, if you have three or four, you get far more help than if you just have one. So if I say, see a mentor for three times a year, and I have four of them, that's 12 bits of help I can get. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to trying to ask a busy person to give me more time. Secondly, you have different gaps in your expertise. Mm. So you use one mentor for this particular aspect of expertise that you haven't got. Another it. mentor for this particular You've got like the smorgasbord of expertise you can draw on certain areas that will be helpful or certain experiences they might have had. Yeah, and then the last thing I'd say about mentoring is why do people think that after a while they don't need it anymore? You know, you have a mentor for yeah. a few years and then you don't need it anymore. I found the longer I was in the job, the more I needed mentors. I might need to change my mentors. My issues are different from what they were. But I get too close to the organization. I don't see it sufficiently, objectively enough. I need people outside the organization who can 
challenge me and make me think about my organization. That's why mentoring isn't, isn't uh, you know, a one-off. It's for life. Yeah. But as long as you're a leader, you need mentors in my view. It is interesting, you know, Steve, so many you know, head teachers, principals, senior leaders, uh, they think a lot about mentoring. That is, who am I meant to be mentoring in the staff, you know, bringing up and through in development. But it's almost like once we're at the position where we're mentoring others, then we don't get a mentor anymore. And, uh, yeah, if you think about other areas of human performance, you know, think about, you know, the, the, the elite tennis players or soccer players or whatever else, uh, those who are at the elite level are looking for the best coaching staff, you know, the best mentoring staff. Uh, that is, as you say, as you get up to the higher levels of expertise, you need someone else looking in, um, breaking, breaking apart some of the patterns, uh, helping you see biases. And I love that connection, actually, between the, the mentoring push you're putting in here, that is, ask questions, seek uh, help, get mentors, and how that links back to the first concept of imperfect leadership around self-awareness, because clearly you could probably get a plateau in self-awareness over time, but the role of that mentor is to help you not only answer things, but to see things afresh. And um, yeah, what do you think it is about people who are stepping into roles who feel out of their depth? And therefore I'm speaking about everyone at some point. What do you think it is about us that, sometimes thinks, well, I'm in this role. Uh, I've been appointed to this role. I should know what to do. So I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to ask lots of questions. I'm not going to go see to me- see a mentor. I'm going to try to just work it out. What do you think it is that sort of leads people to get a role, feel out of their depth, and then pull into themselves rather than reach out? Let's, let's have a go at this. Because I think, I think when you become a leader, yeah. You kind of, as it were, put on the mantle of leadership. You, okay. you accept the fact. It's almost like a, 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 a garment of some kind. Okay. It, it, uh, as an example, it's like you put on the garment. of the, You accept the fact you're now the person in charge. Hmm. Um, and you, most of us do that with some worry. Uh, worried about whether we'll be up to it. But also with some gravitas. Hmm. But some people never quite believe in themselves as a leader. They don't think that they should have been appointed. And as a result, they're not confident at all. Mm. And if you have no confidence as a leader, not at all, yeah. then that's a bad place to be as a leader. Because you're constantly seeking reassurance from the people you're leading. <laughs> you're not providing some decisions, you're not providing some clarity. Uh, and it's a it's a bad place for, to be as a leader. So that's we don't want to be in that position. Don't be a quivering wreck of a leader. Yeah. But other people uh, put on the mantle of leadership and think that they, um, especially if they have some early success, mm. they, they put on the mantle of leadership and put a crown on as well. They think <laughs> they think that they know it all. They think coronation they, has occurred. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, that's a very bad place to be as a leader because. Uh, they think you can't challenge them because mm. they have, they know all the answers. So if you're being led by someone like that, it's a nightmare because um, you, you can't question. You just have to tell them what they want to hear. And, that's a, and that leads to complacency. Now, I think we're at our best as leaders when we've got, and I know this is true for me. I've wrestled with this all my leadership career. Sometimes I've been equipped, you know, I've been lacking in confidence. Uh, and not knowing how to lead my organization. I've been months at a time sometimes mm. when I really struggle. Mm. And I know I've not been leading my organization very well. Uh, other times I've, things have been going very well. I've become a bit complacent uh, and I've not been searching for challenge as I should have been. And I know I'm not leading my organization very well then. So I'm at my best when I've got a balance between confidence and humility. <laughs> now coming back to your question, I think some people when they, be, when they take on the leadership role, obviously, they don't want to be a quivering wreck as a leader. Sure. They think, they think they have to demonstrate to their staff that they are credible, yeah. that they are the leader. And I understand that. But there's one thing is to demonstrate credibility by being able to make some decisions. The other is to say, I don't need any help. And that's a bad place to be. A leader. Got it. 
and it's, it's a bad culture if we give a model of leadership as someone who's supposed to know all the answers mm. and not being able to ask for help. So imperfect leadership, like to bring, it, it seems to me like it's, it's a surprisingly empowering stance to take. Uh, it, it might at first state, you know, sort of think, oh, well, how does that play out? But actually in that stance of humility, um, self-knowledge, empowerment in a true sense and, and distributed sort of uh, roles and opportunities and then this invitational asking questions, seeking help, you actually, um, you know, all the time you're getting better in an iterative kind of sense. And, you know, when we've had chats, I, I've kind of used some of the concepts of agile, not so much sort of in the kind of innovation sense, but as an iterative journey of testing and learning and developing and it may not be all right yeah. now but it's going to be better tomorrow and sometimes i just say to people look uh, is it better than before and they go yeah well i say well that's incredible you know better than before better than before and that incremental growth um that's coming out of humility is probably a pretty um empowering stance to take when you do complex human work like school leadership yeah, and I, I love what you're doing on agile leadership, Simon. I think it does have, it resonates a lot with me, and that's a lot of overlap with what I'm saying about. I impact. appreciate you saying that. I'll continue to pay your retainer, Steve. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and this is what's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, you for longer than me, but uh, as a student of your work and others, it, the adjectival leadership. Thing, which sometimes I get frustrated when people like to take a little pop shot at, 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 oh, adjectival leadership. You've been through them all, right? Transformational leadership, instructional leadership, distributed leadership, agile leadership, and perfect leadership. And it's very easy to take a sort of a critical view of it. But the other way of thinking about it is it's, is it's well-meaning people trying to wrestle with this sort of complex human endeavor with leadership both the leadership of self and others and organizations and you know i always think as we as we choose an adjective or a way of of, of getting some purchase on a piece of it it's about us sort of puzzling through a little bit and you know one of the things that i've heard you speak about before thinking about sort of puzzling through and uh, apparent tensions in leadership I, I think you talk about um power and love power and love as sort of these, these uh, elements of leadership that need to be there, but the need for them to, in some ways, be in balance. It's not a power or love, but it's, an, it's the power of end in that. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about how you've puzzled through that one over time and how you think about kind of these interplay of leaders using power, uh, leaders leading with love and kind of why you need both of them? Thanks, Simon. I found this probably the most helpful concept for me as a leader, mm. this notion of power and love. Uh, but by power, I mean being absolutely determined, focused, dealing with pace, high expectations, yeah. drive, determination, uh, absolute commitment to, to making things happen. Yeah. And without that kind of uh, aspect of your leadership, nothing will change in your organization. Got it. It seems that change has to happen through uh, a focused drive, determination, pace. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think so, some, some leaders um, are a bit too gentle and, and don't, get, don't get the change that, that needs to happen. And so sometimes I've found I've lacked the power side in my leadership. Got it. Uh, so it's not a power, bit, it's not about hierarchy and dominance, it's, it's about no, no, it's just about ambition it's about to change. determination, absolute commitment yeah. to doing what's right for the children. Nothing's going to stop this school improving. These children are going to get the very best uh, possible outcomes. Uh, I'm going to do the very best for them. Yeah. Um, so, um, so the power side is really really important mm. and if we if we're not careful we lose that um, and the best example i can give is when my, when my wife and i bought a house about 15 years ago yeah and we drew up a list of all the things that were completely unacceptable in the house when we moved in that had to change uh, <laughs> you must have been looking about, at that list thinking this is gonna cost us <laughs> we spent about a year going through that list yeah. Uh, um, after about a year, we're two thirds down the list and we stopped. Now, there were two reasons why we stopped. 
The first was, as you said, Simon, we ran out of money. But the second reason we stopped is we stopped noticing the things mm. initially we said were unacceptable. We just got used to them. We, we became, as it were, complacent. And yeah. that, that crack on the windowsill, which we said was unacceptable, stayed there for 15 years. Yeah. We, we never even noticed it anymore. And as a leader, you can go into an organization with your high expectations and your drive and your determination, and you can just gradually just lose it. Yeah, uh, we can just live with that. We can live with that gap in equity. We can kind of live with that lack in this area of teaching. We can kind of live with, we can kind of, you stop noticing it and yeah, okay. So, so you see that happen in leadership, especially mm. after a year or two. Now, what I think is essential is we don't lose that. We don't lose that drive, that ambition, that determination, those expectations. On the other hand, if it's all about drive, pace and focus, yeah. we, we will find we're leading out on front, but no one's following us. Because actually what staff need from us as leaders, most of all, is to feel valued and understood. Hmm. Few people live simple and complicated lives. We understand that as imperfect leaders, and we understand that therefore we need to show love in our leadership. And by love, I mean kindness, empathy, inclusivity, uh, compassion, yeah. um, uh, a sense of generosity. Uh, so those, humility, those aspects mm. uh, what helps us to understand our colleagues, to empathize with the work that they're yeah. doing, and then to help to make sure that they're involved and that we take them with them. And there's a famous African proverb which says, if you want to walk fast, walk alone. If you mm. want to walk far, walk together. <laughs> and the problem with leadership is we want both. Yeah. We want both. Because actually, we don't want to say, well, in five years' time, this school will get better. Yeah, because one, some uh, of our kids have already graduated by then. Um, yeah. yeah. We want to walk fast because we want to improve things quickly for children. But also, we want to walk far. We want it to be sustainable, not just a quick fix. And therefore, we have to make sure that we take people with us. Mm. Power and love in our leadership. It's been the most important concept I've ever had as a leader, and I find it still very relevant even today. You know, speaking about relevant, some of the some of the schools I'm working with are on the edge right now of um, having some kids back. Uh, I know schools all around the world will be in very different positions, and you know, just to set the context for our conversation, it's it's May, it's May 2020. Some schools will be closed through the Northern Hemisphere summer. Uh, here in Australia and New Zealand, we're looking at a gradual coming back. And, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about, Matt, is this tension for particularly principals and school leadership teams now, because their people are tired, right? They've been pushed and there, there needs to uh, be this recovery and this care, particularly of staff of, you know, in some ways they're coming back from their own version of some personally trauma, but just the what what they've all been through collectively. And yet at the same time of wanting to step into, you know, to use your use your concept here of love, of empathy, of I'm here, we're walking together. There's also this point of some of our kids have really dropped off in their learning. Some of our kids, uh, you know, we need to find a way to um, get back quite quickly into high quality instruction, find ways to do good quality assessment. Um, not because we're trying to live the sort of measurable outcomes, but because we're on about human development and learning. And we know that it's, it's hard if a kid has lost 10, 12, 14 weeks of learning at a, at a critical time to catch up. And, you know, it, it just makes me think about some of the conversations I'm having as principals are trying to negotiate their own version of the drive to get back into a functioning school that's high quality teaching and learning and getting kids moving. But then there's also this sense of, I just want to love my community and I just want to be present and I want, uh, I want them to bring their whole, whole person to work. And I know they're in some form of recovery. So yeah, I don't know if you've got any thoughts about, that. I think there is something going on where leaders are going to try to navigate that tension uh, in different yeah, ways over great. the coming six months. That's a great application of power and love to the current context, Simon, I, I think. Uh, just let me say a bit more about that. I, yeah. think, I think leadership in context is absolutely crucial. Um, mm -hmm. You know, no, you can't, 
you can't learn on a leadership development program how to lead in a pandemic because no one's ever led in a pandemic. It's brand new. <laughs> Imagine that it was on a master's of educational leadership course that you and I are teaching. And people like, why am I doing this? What? <laughs> yeah, I've said exactly. a couple of times to people, no one prepared you for this. It's okay, right? Yeah. There's no manual. You know, no. you're, after, you're there and you're trying to make it happen in this context that no one's ever had to deal with before. So it's, it's a very strange situation. And I a think a good time to be okay with imperfect, Steve, you know? Yeah. 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 But I think the key question to ask is not what kind of leader do I want to be? Yeah. But what kind of leadership is needed of me? I like Given that. my context like now, as opposed to what it was six months ago before the virus, Given my new context, mm, what mm. kind of leadership is now needed of me needed. as opposed to what was needed of me uh, six months ago? It's always a great question to ask because you can be, never mind a, a, a pandemic, you can be in a situation which is, you know, seems pretty normal. And even after a year in the same role, what needed of you now might be different from what was needed from you a year ago. So to ask the question as a leader, yeah. What kind of leadership is needed from me now yeah. is a key question to ask. Now, I would say at the moment, trying to make sure that um, you're showing power and love in your, yeah. in your role as a principal yeah. so that you are getting the curriculum back. As yeah. you said, Simon, you know, thinking about what that recovery curriculum might look like, how you bridge the gap, but also all the mental health issues, all the bereavement issues, all the uncertainty, all the fear, yes. all the concern among staff as well as among students, the real need for empathy and love in the leadership too. So I would say three things yeah. at the moment. One is show up, hmm. uh, you know, because you know you are the leader that they need. Yeah, uh, you you are the person who has that leadership role, so you have to show up with bags of resilience and optimism. Even if you're worried yourself, you have to show up and be there for you, your staff and your children. Okay. That's what's called upon you. Secondly, I'd say ask for help. Hmm. Don't think you can do this on your own. Ask for help from your teams. Yeah. yeah. Ask your help from colleagues. Ask for help from anyone you can get help from to make sure you're not just reinventing the wheel. You're, you're learning from what other people are hmm. trying to do. Uh, and thirdly, I'd say, um, Trust your instincts. Yeah, go, like go with your values. Because no one's got an operating manual for this. You're going to have to think it through. So, so trust your instincts and your values and be authentic. Yeah, that's really powerful. I mean, I hadn't really thought, you know, when we were planning to have this conversation and delay, you know, and I wanted to get into the book and, and push a few of these concepts around. But when you think about the psychological stances people are going to need to navigate this and as leaders and and let's be let's be clear it's we're going to go a little bit longer than we feel like we've got it in us to lead through there is a sense where we're not going to be able to just power through we're not going to be able to just somehow uh, have a grand plan and implement with fidelity we're going to have to walk uh, humbly and in human ways with our community we're going to have to learn it through we'll probably have to make more mistakes than we normally do anything from the tactical of how do we bring a timetable back that might be uh supporting of course essential workers um students and and and, and children but then moving to others and there's going to be lots and lots of mistakes i think even steve you know the, the just the total exhaustion level i'd expect um maybe a little bit pa less patience in the common room over the coming months, a little bit more burnout as people are processing all the things they've gone through. And, you know, I, I think this idea of imperfection, but getting better all the time, seeking out help, um, drawing on diverse and empowered teams, maybe right now is the, the best time for people to run a natural experiment in um, being an imperfect leader and, uh, then hopefully bring some of those ways of working and doing back into a state that might look a little bit like um, it used to in schooling. Yeah, I think the big danger is to think you should know it all. 
Yeah. Nobody knows it all at this point in time because no one has done this before. Yeah, I would. I think we should be very skeptical of someone who thinks they know what's going on on this one. Um, <laughs> see, what about, you know, this sense of this has been one of the biggest sho external shocks to, you know, education systems for a long time. And whilst there's been a disruption, I think there's also been a sense of um, a revealing, like what's underneath as well. There's something about it in our personal lives, our family lives and our institutions that the pandemic hits and there's a disruption, but there's also a sense of the water being pulled back and kind of starting to see what's underneath in our values and the way of really working, what's going on. You know, what's, what's your thoughts about in, in all the, the, the sadness and the trauma and everything else going on here, what's your thoughts on the kind of potential for new thinking, new opportunities, new ways of working, leading and teaming together? You know, how are you thinking this through? Okay, it's a great question, Simon. Um, I'd like to know what you're thinking about that too. Oh, um, but happy to hear it. <laughs> but um, for me, I think, first of all, it has been a time of reflection. I think one of the things that you're asking, one's asking oneself now is, what are schools for? Yeah, it's a very essential question, isn't it? It's not tactic. We're realizing, we're realizing that it's not just about academic attainment. Yeah. yeah. And although that's been a lot of the focus in many systems uh, for a number of years, you know, what your, your test scores are going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, that's really, really important. But we realize at times like this, Schools are far more than just uh, organizations that help children to make academic progress. Yes. They, they provide such social interaction. They provide a sense of, of, of routine uh, and security for children, who, many of whom live vulnerable, are vulnerable kids and whom the home life is not a place yeah. of security and routine. Uh, they, they provide all kinds of social and well-being benefits. That, yeah. uh, that we forget about sometimes when we're focusing on all this academic progress. And, and also, it's not just for the children. Actually, it, it, it's a community. Yes. Uh, and for staff too, a, a sense of belonging, a sense of being part of something mm. bigger than themselves. So I think that's the key one. We're asking ourselves, what are schools for? It, it's not just for attainment, but for well-being, for, um, for mental health, uh, for a sense of community, sense of connection. Yeah. And the second thing I'd say on this is um, I'm not sure we'll ever be able to go back, uh, having experienced this, to the idea that schools start at a certain time in the morning mm. and everyone has to be there at the same time and they finish at a certain time at the end of the day and everyone has to leave. Because I think the flexible working for staff Yes has been such that uh, it'd be hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, and I think that increasingly schools will be thinking through how they can manage that in such a way that um, some of the stuff can be done online yep. uh, and, and staff can work from home some of the time, or at least that they're not, it's not a regimented system like we've had in the past. And equally for students, I've been talking to some colleagues in Hong Kong who are saying that they don't think parents will want to go back to a situation whereby nothing is online learning, it's all in the classroom stuff. Uh, and they'll be wanting more of a mix and match. So I think we'll be learning from technology yes. what's worked for staff and for students, not to say you have everyone learned from home, but say we can learn from the best to make what schools do more relevant and more practical than it was in the past. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I love this idea of kind of asking again the fundamental questions sort of what are schools for or, you know, what's worth developing in a human being. Um, and, you know, I don't know about you and your, your um, isolation right now, but, you know, the things we long most for are the human, right? It's the, it's the informal meal with friends and the dinner party that was meant to be short and that uh, goes on and on. Uh, as you sort of explore and you share and you tell the stories of the past and you sort of chat about new things and make sense of life. Uh, it's those deep human connections. And I think 
you know, the kind of technocratic part of schooling, of schooling as a delivery chain of content being delivered by high quality practices and students attaining certain outcomes, we've kind of looked at that and said, oh, it was, it was so functionalist. It was so narrow. No, what we're longing for is what you've been talking about. Like we're longing to be at the school gate together again. You know, we're longing to gather together in the anticipation of the human interactions in a classroom. Um, you know, we're longing to be taught by the teacher or the teachers that know us by name and greet us. Um, you know, my, I've got, um, my, my, my eldest has just started kindergarten. So in Australia, that's, you know, you five, you know, five-year-olds and it's fascinating, you know, he's eight weeks in, eight weeks in to the start of his school journey and then it just stops. And, you know, that school's done an amazing, we've got all the content, we've got all the materials, we can do it, but what we long for him is to be in a classroom of diverse friends that are more diverse than our friendship groups of another adult who cares for him, but teaches him and pushes him, you know, a sense of belonging to a community that he puts his little yellow uniform on, he belongs to that place. Uh, and I think there is, uh, I'm kind of calling it the education's human moment that we're rediscovering and, what I'm hoping is on the other side that we don't snap back. You know, that's something I'm thinking a lot about because I think Australia is different to Northern Hemisphere in the sense and New Zealand colleagues as well. There is a move that we could get back to quickly and people have been saying um, business as usual, getting back to it. And I don't want to get back to it. Uh, what I want to do is to slow down enough to uh, learn from the incredible adaptations and then weave new through lines into some level of renewal, some sort of build back better and different. And what I guess I'm arguing is more human uh, in, in a more human way that strips back some of the inessential and gets to the things that uh, we've been longing for the most in their absence. And I think that's probably my fear, mate. In fact, it makes you realize how important culture is in a school. Yeah. Uh, not the kind of systems, not the technocratic aspect. Yes. It's just the, 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 the atmosphere, the culture for the children and for the staff. And that's so important. And let's remind ourselves that schools have a really key role in that aspect, not just in the technical aspect. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And I think we're rediscovering yeah, schools as community, um, schools as places of belonging and connection, schools as places of human development, not just learning. Like I think even the, I'm all up for learning. I'm a big fan of learning, but you know, there's almost a broadening out of uh, what goes on uh, both individually and collective in these places called schools. And, you know, we miss a lot of things. We miss the restaurants and we miss the other thing, but we miss our schools, not just the kids, uh, but you know, as families connecting together in these, in these places. Um, uh, I really am hopeful that on the other side um, that we don't just snap back, that we take the time to learn, uh, to learn from this incredible adaptation and innovation and pivoting and what el whatever else you want to call what our profession has pulled off remarkably. Uh, I think it deserves a level of organisational learning worthy of what they've been through. Um, one of the, I, I absolutely agree, and for me, one of the issues is, especially in here in the UK and in England, with the high-stakes accountability system that we have, yeah. which is all down uh, and quite narrow, and yeah. being judged on a very narrow range of measures, to move from accountability, top-down accountability, towards collective responsibility yes. uh, for the children and the parents and the community uh, would be a great step forward if we, uh, in terms of learning from this. I'm with you, uh, yeah. You know, and with a pause of testing in many of the systems you and I work in, there's this little natural experiment that no matter how much political kind of uh, lobbying you did, you wouldn't have pulled it off, a, a pause in national assessment systems. And the real question I reckon now is this, will the profession use that pause to have that, um, professional responsibility to use your language of enough of the power and drive side to say we never needed that actually we we've got a higher moral imperative to move uh, 
that's driving us to do this work or will we use it as a chance to just, oh, thank heavens the pressure's off for a year. And, you know, I think we've got to prove to everyone that in the absence of external accountability, uh, we hold ourselves to a higher standard because of that peer collective responsibility. That's an absolute key point. The, the real worry, I think, is if we just say, well, the pressure's off. Yeah. And we just get complacent rather than reinventing collective responsibility. Mm. Hey, look, mate, um, I've just looked at the clock and you've been very generous in your morning here. And as is the hope, I mean, we didn't get together in March over a meal that we planned. Um, but I'm hoping this little catch up from afar might get us through. There's heaps more I wanted to get into with you. I want to get into some of the stuff that you and I both look at from research and practice, leadership development, identification, uh, some of the work you've just been writing on uh, this uh, tension or perceived tension between do we focus on generic leadership skills and, um, and or uh, domain specific knowledge. So can I just ask you why you're under pressure here? Would you come back and have another conversation with me uh, where we might pick up some threads specifically around the how and the what of leadership development and maybe do a part two on this one. What do you reckon, mate? I'd love to do that, Simon. Uh, I'd also love to meet up in person uh, in the future for a drink and a meal together. I'm hoping to be back in Australia in, in March. So maybe by then it, it might be possible, but you'd like to have a further Hopefully. discussion. And I'd also like to hear more from you about what you're saying on how we lead through this pandemic. So I'm going to try and tap into some of your online stuff so I can learn from it. Well, it's a, it's a work in progress. Uh, and as with all the good ideas, it's a sort of iterative process of testing and learning with the, 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 the real uh, heroes of this work, which are our practitioners that have been uh, leading these communities as they lead their families at the same time through this um, you know, we've heard it so many times, unprecedented time. Uh, yeah. And so, look, man, I just want to thank you because if there's anything people need when uh, you're in unprecedented times where there's no way, as you said before, you can know the answer, you need a stance of leadership, which doesn't mean that you know everything, but you know what to do when you don't know everything. And I reckon you've cracked it in uh, your notion of imperfect leadership and appreciate you spending some time unpacking it riffing a little bit with me and look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Simon. Great to talk to you. Thanks, mate. Stay safe, stay connected and speak to you soon.